0: Welcome everybody to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Justin. Today we kick off a probably a three-part series on Al Capone. Some of his crimes, he was a wild, wild dude, I will tell you that much. But first, gotta give a huge shout-out to Joseph H. He is the newest Patreon subscriber. If you'd like to subscribe to Patreon, we have two, five, and ten-dollar tiers. There's three episodes a month, uh, usually two minis and one full-length one. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash circumstances. You can check out the episodes, look through them, see if that's something that you uh, might want to do. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can always hit the Venmo at MC Podcast. I will also be reading a few of the newest reviews after this episode, and I will tell you this right now. I'm going to run a little competition, okay? If you want to hear about the Kray Twins out of East London through the 1960s, let's see some reviews. If you want to hear about Ned Kelly from Australia, let's see the reviews. At the end of November, I'm going to tally up all the reviews that I got. Whether it's one or two, I don't care. Now, eventually, I will do both episodes, but that will determine which one gets done first. It'll be the first of the year big episode. I've always wanted to do like a big series from outside of the U.S., so I guess we'll we'll find out what happens at the beginning of the year then. It's up to you. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language, So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind. Parental discretion is advised. Al Capone, public enemy number one, the most notorious of all gangsters. In the 1920s, during Prohibition, Capone ruled the city of Chicago with his Thompson machine gun and an iron fist. He used brute force and murder to maintain control over a vast network of distilleries breweries and brothels Nicknamed Scarface Capone's brazen charm and cold-blooded tactics made him a legend behind the scenes The authorities have already collected a vast amount of material against him nevertheless they are not able to prove him guilty of a single crime. Chicago was ruled by Al Capone, and because he became synonymous with organized crime, the syndicate, the mafia, call it what you will, he became a legend. He was the first real big gangster that the United States ever had. Had this man taken all his energy, talent, and basic intelligence and guts, if you will, and directed uh, this energy down legitimate uh, avenues, He'd been a very successful business man there's no doubt about it the guy did a heck of a lot of good for the city of chicago he, he during the depression he he st- built uh, free food stations for the four people that had their meals every day all over the city he was a murderer in the fact that he not only took part in murders that couldn't be prosecuted for fear of retribution but that he had uh, ordered The murders of approximately 300 of his rivals and his enemies. The most notorious of all gangsters, Scarface Al Capone, rose to power through brute force and murder. He had to beat his way, muscle his way into what he wanted. All right, so Capone's parents immigrated to the United States from Naples in about 1893. Al Capone himself was the fourth of nine children, and he was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17, 1899. His father, Gabriel Capone, who was a pretty respectable barber, uh, he ended up passing away in 1920, and his mother, Teresa Capone, she ended up passing away in 1952. So a little bit about his family. Vincenzo Capone was the oldest of the Capone children. And believe it or not, he ended up changing his name to Richard Hart once he got old enough. And he moved away from New York and became a prohibition agent. And uh, he ended up moving to Homer, Nebraska, which is insane. If you want to look him up, he's actually very well documented. And he wanted Absolutely nothing to do with the Capone name after Al started getting into trouble and making a reputation for himself. Raphael James Capone was known as Ralph. He went by the nickname Bottles. He was in charge of some of his brother's prohibition shit, some of his breweries. Then we have another one, Salvatore Capone, who went as Frank. Then we have Al Capone. Then we have Ermina Capone. She died at the age of one. Then we have Ermino Capone, who went by John. Then you have Albert Capone, Matthew Capone, Mafalda Capone. That was all the children. Ralph and Frank, like I said, ended up working with Al Capone, and they will be mentioned in this episode as well. So Al Capone ended up being the first one born in America. The Capone family did not have very much money, even though the parents were respectable and, uh, you know, they held very respectable jobs. They were Italian immigrants in New York in the early 1900s. And let me paint a picture of context for you. At this time period, the Italians, the Irish, all of them coming into New York at this point in time, they were not liked. They were not welcome. They definitely had to uh, had to fight for respect, which is why I think Al Capone kind of turned out the way he did, even though some of his family, his siblings, didn't turn out that way. But some of them did, all right? So in 1910, when Al was 11 years old, the Capone family moved to 38 Garfield Place in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Now, Capone showed promise as a student, okay? He had a problem with uh, rules, and he had a problem with authority. He was not a dumb kid. He just kind of went to school, just got by. But in 1913, at the age of 14, Al Capone quit going to school, and how this ended up. Like I said, he was a good student in Brooklyn Elementary. He began falling behind. He had to repeat the sixth grade. He started playing hooky a lot, started hanging out by the Brooklyn docks, started getting into a little bit of trouble. So one day, Capone's teacher hit him for insolence, and he actually hit her back. So the principal ended up giving him a beating. And after that, Capone just never really went back to school. He worked a variety of odd jobs. He was a candy store clerk. He worked uh, in a bowling alley as a pin boy setting up the pins. He was a laborer in a munitions factory he was a cutter in a book bindery and the whole time he's working these odd jobs he's also in a lot of different gangs he's in the South Brooklyn Rippers he's in the 40 Thieves Juniors a lot of these younger juvenile gangs you know they're just petty crimes in New York at this time most people joined a gang because you needed that protection. You wanted to feel a part of something because like I said, man, the immigrants coming in through New York, especially the Italians at this point in time, they were very, very looked down upon. Like even in schools, like the teachers would always complain that the, uh, that the Italian kids were greasy and that they were stupid. They didn't want them around. You know what I mean? So he's, Basically, joining these kid gangs, just doing all kinds of random shit, right? From 1916 to 1918, he actually played semi-professional baseball. And while he's also hanging out at these New York docks doing semi-pro baseball, da-da-da-da, he meets a guy named Johnny Torrio. And Johnny Torrio ends up becoming his mentor. He ran a numbers and gambling operation near Capone's house, you know, and uh, Capone started running small errands for him just to make a little bit of extra money. And uh, around this time is when Capone also becomes a member of a few more gangs, one of which being the Bowery Boys, then you have the James Street Boys gang. Then he ends up getting in a gang that is very well known, which was the Five Points Gang, which was out of Lower Manhattan. Now, Johnny Torrio wasn't living in New York at this time. Johnny Torrio had left Brooklyn for Chicago in 1909, but Capone and him remained close even when he wasn't around. Now, in 1917... Uh, When Capone was about 17, 18 years old Johnny Torrio introduces him to a gangster friend of his By the name of Frankie Yale Now Frankie Yale plays a big role in this episode And his name will come up, so pay attention By the way, I'm going to be throwing a lot of different names at you A lot of uh, associations So just try to keep up, keep these down I'm going to try not to get excited and rattle shit off, Okay when he meets Frankie Yale, uh, Frankie hires him as a bartender and bouncer at the Harvard Inn, which was located in Coney Island. And it was there, supposedly, where Capone earned the nickname Scarface. And here's how this story goes. One night, he made a remark to a woman at a bar. Now, while he was working the door, he was supposedly slashed across the face three times by a guy named Frank Galluccio. Now, the date... That this occurred has a lot of inconsistencies. So in August of 1917, he was working at a place called the Harvard Inn, okay? Uh, the Harvard Inn was super packed every day because of the heat wave. Supposedly a guy named Frank Galuccio comes into the bar and he's got his date named Maria and he's got his younger sister, Lena, with him. Now Capone, like I said, he was 18 at the time. He pretty much saw Lena and was like, what is up, right? So he goes up and he walks up to her. And he says, I'll tell you one thing. You got a nice ass, honey. And I mean that as a compliment. So Galluccio heard this. And he walks up to Capone and he demands an apology from him. And Capone basically told him to fuck off. He's like, I ain't apologizing to you, man. He's like, I was only joking. Don't worry about it. So Galluccio decided to take the situation to the next level and pulls out a knife and he starts slashing at Capone and he managed to get three cuts on Capone's face and right up on the upper neck like right on the side of his cheek there now Capone supposedly goes down and pool of blood and Frank Galluccio goes running out of the Harvard Inn now at this point Capone was rushed to the Coney Island Hospital where he received 80 stitches and was told he would have those scars on his face forever, which he totally did. Galuccio, he knew that he had messed up, okay, and he knew who he had messed up with. So he was scared for his life. So Frankie Yale is like, screw this, man. I'm going to pull you guys together. You guys need to figure it out. So he gets Capone and Galluccio at the Harvard Inn and he sits them both down Yale turned Capone's head to show what Galluccio had done, you know, with the scars and shit. Galluccio thought he was going to die. He legit thought that he was going to die. So, uh, he's trying to plead his case. Now, Frankie Yale never had any intention of killing Frank Galluccio, okay? He was a businessman. So he's like, maybe I can profit off this somehow. Keep this guy alive, da-da-da. So he tells Galluccio to pay Capone $1,500. $1,500. which would, in today's money, be about twenty grand, And in return, Capone had to promise never to retaliate against Frank Galluccio. The reason that Frankie Yale had Capone's back in this situation is because there was an earlier altercation over a dice game, which was hosted by Frankie Yale. And we're not exactly sure when this went down, we just know it was before this. Apparently, the winner of this big dice game, you know, craps game, Al Capone went to rob him. You know, give me your shit. The guy refused to give him anything. He ended up shooting the guy, and he gave all the money to Frankie Yale. And to top it all off, Yale actually lent Galluccio the money to pay off Al Capone for this $20,000, which made him indebted to Yale. He still tacked a bunch of interest on it. Now, here is the other version of the story, and probably the one that is more accurate. I gotta give credit where it's due, where this information comes from is a guy named Mario Gomez from Montreal, Canada. This guy started a website called myalcaponemuseum.com, and I highly suggest you go hit this website up. It's got 153 web pages as of now, over 4,000 images. This guy has probably done more in depth research than anybody else about Al Capone. So, this is what he has found out. On December 8th, 1918, Al Capone got his scars on a Saturday night. And the reason we know this is because the event actually made the Brooklyn newspaper the next day. Here's that article related to the Al Capone slashing. Italian victim of assault. Alfonso Capone, 20, an Italian, living at 38 Garfield Place, was approached by two men last night. One of them slashed his... Right cheek with a knife. The wound was addressed by a doctor from the Methodist hospital. Capone was unable to give the police a description of his assailants. And that's literally all it says. And uh, I did find that uh, newspaper clipping like a picture of it on that website that I had mentioned. So without giving specific details, Capone stated it was two men who attacked him and slashed his face. It is confirmed that he was patched up by a doctor from a hospital in Brooklyn and not Coney Island, which is what Galluccio has said in his version of the story. Now, there is also reports in underworld circles, especially from those who were in the circles who knew what was going on at the time, and uh, they had said anonymously that uh, the capone slashing attack happened at union street near fourth and fifth avenues and this actually makes more sense because of the location of where it happened now mario gomez's theory is that Galluccio was the attacker and possibly was somebody else at this location capone wasn't out at all of his territory he lived at 38 garfield place which was just five minutes from the area where the attack occurred Frank Galluccio lived at 677 Union Street, which was just about 200 feet from Union Street and 4th and 5th Avenues, which is where the attack occurred. Frank Galluccio never even had a younger sister named Lena. There is no truth to Galluccio's version that his younger sister Lena was the cause of the attack and, uh, you know, he was not standing up for her honor. Now, was he a part of the attack? Yes, he more than likely was. His version of events of how the scars came about did not come up publicly until later on. So shortly after this happened, on December 30th, 1918, when Capone was 19 years old, he marries May Josephine Coughlin. And this is uh, just a couple weeks after the birth of their their child, Albert Francis, uh, who went by the nickname Sonny. Now his former boss and friend Johnny Torrio was the boy's godfather. Now, a little bit about Albert Francis, also known as Sonny. I will say, like, in, I think it's 1965, he ended up changing his name. He didn't want anything to do with the last name Capone, didn't want anything to do with his dad. Now, Albert had lost the most of his hearing in his left ear as a child. Now, by all accounts, the two had a happy marriage despite his criminal lifestyle. It is still... Not really determined whether or not his wife had syphilis because it's supposedly around this time that he probably contracted it. At this point in time, Al Capone has a son and he is freshly married. Now, how Capone ends up in Chicago around this time period, there is also two other sides of this story, okay? Now, the first version goes like this. And it has to do with Capone shooting the winner of that craps game. And he shot him to death, robbed him of all his winnings, gave his winnings to Frankie Yale. Now, despite being questioned by police, Capone was let go because there were no witnesses to the murder. Now, Capone also brutally assaulted a low-level member of a rival Whitehead gang and left him for dead. The Whitehead gang leaders had promised retribution. And according to this version of the story... Meyer Lansky hid him in Brooklyn. Now, Yale ended up sending Al Capone, his wife, and their son to Chicago to work for Torrio to basically protect him, to get him the hell out of Dodge, because they valued Al Capone, right? That is one version of the events of what made Al Capone go to Chicago. Now, with that, we have to talk about Prohibition for a minute. And I'm sorry if it seems like we're jumping around a whole bunch, but some of those first 20 years or so are kind of shady with information prohibition in the united states starts okay it was uh it was passed in 1919 and it lasted for 13 years if you're not familiar with it oh man it made gangsters billionaires Now, prohibitionists first attempted to end the the trade of alcoholic beverages during the 19th century, in the 1800s. And uh, there were actually some communities that banned it way before prohibition was even a thing, all right? And I kind of admire why they were doing it. I mean, I don't want to say the word admire, but I understand why. It was because they were trying to get rid of problems like alcoholism, family violence. and they were trying to get rid of saloon-based political corruption because at the time, all these uh, politicians are going and getting drunk, there's gangsters in there, they're making deals, money's switching hands, and there's all this corruption going on. So it, it basically came down to like a moral dilemma. Now when they passed Prohibition, Johnny Torrio was already in Chicago, and he's like, we're already shipping in booze. Like under the radar, you know, and he's working for a guy named Big Jim Colosimo, and Big Jim Colosimo, he ran brothels, you know, he ran some rackets, some protection rackets and shit like that. But as soon as Prohibition started, Johnny Torrio's like, holy shit. We can make so much money if we actually invest more time and more money into getting booze into the United States because we can charge whatever we want. People aren't going to quit drinking just because it's against the law. But Big Jim Colosimo was like, no, I'm already rich enough. I don't need another racket. I don't need to deal with any more shit. So Torrio is like you know what, fuck this guy, we're gonna take him out. And it wasn't just because of that reason, it was also because Colosimo was his step-uncle, and he had recently divorced his aunt. So he had two reasons right there to take this dude out. And he's like, dude, we can run Chicago, we can make so much money. So on May 11th, 1920, this is when Colosimo gets taken out, right? Torrio sent Colosimo to his restaurant to meet with bootleggers. When they ended up not showing up, Big Jim Colosimo he got mad and he goes to leave and two guys jump out of the uh, coat room and just shot him dead right there in the lobby just unloaded their pistols on him now Al Capone was suspected of being involved now both Frankie Yale and Torrio were put on trial for the murders because it's more than likely Al Capone might not have been involved because of the other version of the story which I'm about to tell you okay Frankie Yale definitely was involved, along with Torrio. They were put on trial for the murders, and then all of the witnesses refused to testify, and both men were released. Now, in 1920 in Chicago, Torrio, after this murder, is presiding over this huge business, and it's gambling, prostitution, and like I said, when they enacted the uh, the 18th Amendment, which is Prohibition, Torrio starts focusing all his energy on bootlegging because it's going to make them so much more money right now the other half of this story about how capone got to chicago starts here in 1920 when he becomes a father and he wants to do right by his family so he moves to baltimore and this is where he takes an honest job as a bookkeeper for a construction company. Now, this is from a book called Capone, The Man in the Era, and it's uh, by a guy named Lawrence burgreen burgreen writes, when Capone left home, he first went to Baltimore, where he worked as a bookkeeper for a legitimate construction firm ran by Peter Aiello. Capone's position was purely clerical. Each morning, he would be sober, he would be dressed in a suit and tie, and he would go to the ILO offices in the Highland Town section of Baltimore, Maryland. Now, Capone was a grade school dropout, but he also had a very, very good talent with numbers, and this is something that Frankie Yale and Johnny Torrio had helped him. Basically, they groomed this guy. He was very, very good with numbers, so he wanted to get a job doing something like that. So nobody really knows where the Capone house was at that time, but there was a family of three, and it was Capone, May, and their son, Albert Francis. Now, for him, his job was a way out of his environment and an attempt to be legitimate and respectable and to pull away from any racketeering whatsoever. The author also stressed And this is a quote from his book. I want to stress that Aiello Construction Company was and is a completely legitimate company with no ties to organized crime whatsoever. And while this is going on, on November 14th, 1920, Capone's father dies of a heart attack. One source says that he was already in Chicago, like I had mentioned previously, and some other sources say this was part of the reason that he went to Chicago. The author of this book did an interview with the son of the owner of this construction company, a guy named Mike Aiello. Now he says, evidently he was a good employee, and evidently my father liked him. So when Johnny Torrio asked Capone to come to Chicago, Peter Aiello lent him $500, which would be $6,500 today. He says, quote, he said he was cut out to do bigger and better things, and he needed money to go to Chicago because he had some opportunities there. Capone never did forget a debt. A few years later, the crime boss ended up throwing his former legit boss a parade in Cicero, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. And basically it was a huge thank you. It was to show his former boss who believed in him, who lent him this money, that um, you know, he had basically arrived. Now whether that is true or not, I don't I don't fucking know because these early years there is so much shit that is contradictory to what you're gonna read and hear. And man, I'm telling you like I know this first 20 minutes has been confusing, but trust me, researching it is even more confusing. I can guarantee you that shit. But all in all, what happens is Johnny Torrio offered Al Capone and his two of his brothers managing jobs and they would be managing two brothels. And after a year, Al was put in charge of a place called the Four Deuces. This is where Torrio's head of operations was, and it is said that at the Four Deuces, the basement was used to torture men with information valuable to the Torrio-Capone force. And uh, while the upstairs had a bunch of uh, a bunch of women, you know, when people would come into the Four Deuces, it didn't matter if you were a mobster, gangster, or a politician or a cop; you all got the same treatment. So, a lot of people would go in there to have some sex, and they would be in there drinking booze and all kinds of shit like that. When Capone moves there, like I said, he was very good with numbers, but he was also a fucking tough guy. He would not hesitate to throw down. So, when he goes there, you know, hitting the rackets, he starts running a couple of a brothels and da da da, you know, he was a bouncer. He was also testing out a lot of the quote unquote merchandise you know before a new lady would go to work there you know like I said it's already theorized that he had syphilis before this but if he didn't he sure as hell got it right around this time period but Torrio realized that he was very good at what he was doing so he decides to make him a partner and one of the interesting things that I had read that Torrio actually made Capone go to night classes To get rid of his accent. He wanted him to sound a little bit more respectful. And they were thinking that Capone had a really really rough broken Brooklyn accent. And he wanted to get rid of that. Now whether or not that's true we don't know. But people who knew him later in life said he had no particular accent whatsoever. So there is that. With Capone contracting syphilis. By this time it's established he more than likely got it anywhere from 1918 to 1920, 1921. Now, he could have used a uh, salversan, and it probably would have cured the syphilis. But Capone really never saw any kind of treatment for it. So, as you're going to find out when we get to Part 3, it's literally his downfall. So, Johnny Torrio essentially led, like, this huge Italian organized crime group... It was the biggest in the city of Chicago, okay? Al Capone is his right-hand man, and they start bringing in some serious cash. Now, for those of you who do not know, okay, this is before the five families, the National Crime Syndicate was set up by Lucky Luciano. This is before the commission was established. So they called their organized crime group The Outfit. And for those of you who do not know, Al Capone was not in the mob. He was never in the mafia. He was not a made guy. So a lot of people think he was a mobster and this and that. It's it's just not true. He was never affiliated with the mafia. Now, at this time, there was a predecessor to the Sicilian mob and the Italian mob in Chicago. Now, a lot of this, it was called Black Hand, the Black Hand. Capone was one of those people, he didn't give a shit what your ethnicity was, where you came from, what color you were, he didn't care. If he could work with you and make more money and you make some money, he would work with you, he didn't give a shit. So this really, really kind of worked out on all facets for everybody, but yeah, Torrio and Capone technically at this point in time are the biggest organized crime group in the city of Chicago, and they ran this city. All bullshit aside, at this time he also starts showing up in uh, sports pages in the newspaper as a he's described as a boxing promoter. Now Al Capone was a boxer; he enjoyed that shit. Like I said, dude was not afraid to fight. The difference between Capone and Torrio though is Torrio was very, very low key. Very low key. He was not flashy. He would do his quote unquote job, you know, from nine to five, run in a crime syndicate. You know, known as the outfit. And then he would go home with his wife, have dinner, just super quiet. Al Capone, on the other hand, totally different, man. This dude, he's known as a quote-unquote rebel rouser. He's known as a drinker. You know, he's uh having sex with all the girls in the brothels. At one point in the early 20s, after hitting a parked taxi cab while driving drunk, he was arrested for the first time. And Torrio, uh, Torrio obviously used all his uh, government connections to get him off. And that's, you know, he never ended up getting in trouble for that. So in 1923, right around here, Capone starts cleaning up his act because he finally moves his entire family to Chicago. And I'm not talking about his wife and kid. I'm talking about everybody. He's got his wife, son, his mom, younger brothers, and sister. They all moved to Chicago. And Capone bought a house at 7244 South Prairie Avenue in the Park Manor neighborhood, which was in the city's south side. And he bought it for $5,500, which today would be about $83,000. And from what I understand, it was a pretty modest house, a little bit upper-middle-class house, middle-class house, nothing too special. Um, Also in 1923... Uh, Chicago elected a reformist mayor who announced that he planned to rid the city of corruption. Torion and Capone were shitty about this. They're like, fuck, man, we can't buy off the mayor anymore because uh, Chicago is a beautiful city no matter what, for those of you who have never been there. I'm only about two hours away on the Amtrak from Chicago. I used to visit all the time before all the Rona hit. But back in the twenties, man, it was known to be super corrupt, which we'll get to. A guy named Big Bill Thompson is probably known, arguably as one of the most corrupt city mayors that you'll ever meet. So in 1923, right, they they elect this mayor who's like, that's it, corruption's done. We're not dealing with these speakeasies anymore. We're not playing this bullshit. None of my cops and none of our government officials are going to be paid off. So Torrio and Capone are like, well, fuck, what are we going to do now? So they ended up moving their base of operations outside of Chicago to a suburb known as Cicero. And they did this to ensure that they could keep a business going. But in 1924, after they get there because they want a corrupt You know, local government, so they can do whatever they want. Cicero actually threatens to close down their operations because they are looking to get a Marin that is gonna shut down all the illegal shit, all the speakeasies. And for those of you outside of the country, a speakeasy is an illegal bar back in the prohibition days, and they called it a speakeasy because. You wanted to speak easy about it so that other people wouldn't find out. And then the bar would get fucking busted by prohibition agents. So that's what I'm referring to when I say a speakeasy. So on March 31st, 1924, Torrio and Capone initiated an intimidation effort on the day of the election. And this was to guarantee that the mayor that they wanted was going to be the winner. When they went down to the polls, okay, they went down there with sawed off shotguns. Tommy guns pistols and they would straight stand there while you're voting and just be like hey I hope you make the right choice they would beat the shit out of people there were people who were shot and killed during this uh, voting when they would go down to the polling stations or whatever that was until they killed Al Capone's brother Frank and how this goes down is on April 1st 1924 he ends up getting in a shootout with police and this is where Al Capone starts getting way more violent after this as well. So how this happens is the Chicago police sent 70 officers. And they were trying to stop all the bullshit with all the voting, you know, because they knew that the Capones and Johnny Torrio were down here at the at the polling stations just straight up holding people at gunpoint, telling them who to vote for. The county judge, Edmund K. Jarecki, he deputized 70 Chicago police officers. Some of them arrived in, like, limousines, unmarked cars, and they were trying to disguise their presence until the very last possible second. Now, mind you, all 70 of these cops were dressed as normal people. They had no uniforms on whatsoever. So 30 of these officers pulled up outside the polling station, which was occupied by Frank and Al Capone. And... They thought that the cops were North Side mobsters who was their bitter rivals in Chicago. And trust me, we're going to be touching base on that war here in a little bit. All right. But Frank and Al are like, what are the Northsiders doing down here? And they thought that they were coming down to attack them. Now, here's where the details differ. The police report says that Frank had pulled out his gun and started to fire rounds at the officers who he thought were Northside mobsters. In retaliation, the officers with submachine guns fired back at Frank. And they say Frank Capone was struck with over a couple dozen bullets. I mean, they just unloaded on this guy. Just riddled with bullets head to toe. And he was killed at the scene. Now, other reports from witnesses at the scene said that Frank's gun was still in his back pocket and that his hands were free of any weapons whatsoever. So after this all goes down and Al Capone ended up getting away like once the shots were fired and Al Capone tried to, or and Frank Capone tried to, I should say. Now, after this happened, the press starts following Al Capone very, very closely. They're following his every move because this made huge headlines. But he was also able to gain a little bit of public sympathy because he was a very generous guy. Yeah, it was more than likely a PR move trying to make himself look better in the public light, but it worked. You know, he was extremely generous. He would pay people's hospital bills, he would go open up soup kitchens during the Great Depression, which we'll get to, and People liked the guy, all right? He was a likable guy. Unless you fucked him over, then he was going to kill you. Actually, there is one story. An editor of the Cicero Tribune, a guy named Robert St. John, and he put out some articles in the newspaper, and he started calling out all the paid-off officials. Obviously, the Capones and... Torrio and the outfit did not appreciate this shit. They're like, what are you doing? And this guy straight just named names of all these corrupt government officials calling everybody out, talking shit about the Capones, right? So Al Capone and a few others show up one morning when this dude is walking to work and they ended up beating the absolute shit out of him. Robert St. John was still alive and when he gave the interview in the documentary I watched and he straight up says he's like, I was crossing the street. I saw these dudes get out of a couple cars, and the first face I recognized was Ralph Capone. And he's like, I basically curled up in a ball with my head between my legs and just hoped for the best. And they did. They beat the shit out of this dude with billy clubs. Uh, they put bars of soap and fucking socks and just beat the shit out of this dude, right? So he ends up going to the hospital. When Robert St. John ends up getting out of the hospital, he's going to check out and pay his bill. He finds out that his hospital bill had already been paid in full. And he was like, well, who the hell paid my hospital bill? And uh, the receptionist was like, well, we don't know. He was, uh, you know, he's about five foot ten, a little bit heavier set, had had some scars across the left side of his face. And right then, dude, Robert St. John is like this motherfucker, man. He just paid my hospital bills after he sent dudes to beat the shit out of me for printing an article about him and to top it off. Robert St. John goes and finds out that Al Capone went and bought controlling interest of the newspaper that he worked for to add insult to injury. He's like, well, they ain't going to be printing any shit about me bad anytime soon because I own fucking the higher percentage of the newspaper now. So, (laughs) I mean, you can say what you want about Al Capone. He was not a stupid guy, not a stupid guy at all. So about a week after Frank's death... He opens up Cicero's first betting parlor, and uh, it was called the Hawthorne Smoke Shop. The best part about this was is Al Capone had a huge gambling problem. He enjoyed gambling like crazy. The best part about this is is since he owned the betting parlor, it didn't matter if he won or lost. He was still going to make a profit off of everything, but... A lot of the races were also fixed. So there is that. And there is a a cool story about this one guy. And it's when he was a kid. And he goes into the track. And he says, yeah, I see Al Capone and a couple of his goons there. And Al Capone walks up to me and says, hey, you know, you having a good time, kid? And he puts a $5 ticket into his his shirt pocket. And he says, number six is going to win. And he goes and leaves. And the odds on number 6 winning were 60 to 1, okay? And this kid ended up making, uh, in today's money, about 800 bucks off of a $70 ticket, which 70 being today's currency. You know, the guy's like, yeah, man, he just walked up, said, hey, how's it going? Uh, number 6 is going to win, and just put that ticket stub right in his pocket. Just, you know, whatever. But like I said, after Frank's death, Al Capone does start getting way more violent, right? On May 7th, 1924... This is when Al Capone basically made his mark. So on May 7th, 1924, a guy named Joe Howard, who is like a low-level, low-level thug in Chicago. And uh, he has too many drinks, and he starts getting into a physical altercation with a guy named Jake Guzik. Now, this normally wouldn't be any kind of big deal, but... Jake Guzik is a good friend of Al Capone. And after this altercation happens, this Joe Howard starts bragging about how he made the little Jew wine because Jake Guzik was a Jewish dude. So Jake Guzik shows up to meet with Al Capone about some shit, and he's all beat up and everything like that. And if there's one thing that you need to know about Al Capone, yes, he was a criminal, yes, he was a murderer. It is estimated that he ordered the deaths of right around 300 people during his reign of power. So he was not afraid to have people taken out. But if you were on his side and you were loyal, he was probably one of the best dudes to have in your corner, and that was his relationship with Jake Guzik. So after Guzik tells Capone about the confrontation, about what happened and shit, Al Capone Starts hunting down Joe Howard, and he finds him at uh, Jaime Jacobs Bar, which is about a half a block from Capone's Chicago headquarters, which was located at the Four Deuces. Now, when Capone arrived, he sees Joe Howard there, and he straight up demands an apology. And Joe Howard replied by calling Al Capone a pimp, which, even though Al Capone was a pimp, he fucking hated being called a pimp. So Capone goes off. And this is actually what the the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune reported the day after in the newspaper. It says, "Another murder in the liquor and a crime serial was accomplished last night. Alphonse Capone, vice lord of the South Side badlands, where he is better known as Al Brown of Four Deuces fame," Is sought as the slayer. The order to capture Capone went out 30 minutes after the body of Joseph L. Howard, beer runner and burglar, credited with three notches on his gun, was found laying in front of the cigar counter of Jaime Jacobs' saloon at 2300 Wabash Avenue. Howard had been shot six times, four times in the face, and twice in the right shoulder. Al Capone just straight up walked up to the dude. There were plenty of witnesses in this bar. And by the way, he went by Al Brown. That was his alias. He walks in this bar and he sees Joe Howard in there and he says, Hey, you need to apologize for what you did to, uh, to Guzik. And this dude basically called him a pimp, told him to fuck off, said he's not apologizing for anything. So Al Capone put a gun right in his face and unloaded it no hesitation no bullshit unloaded four rounds into his face and as he was falling down two of them went into his shoulder all bullshit aside that is gangster okay that is gangster right there and the thing about it was after the command to find Capone went out the police immediately checked the four deuces and they went to Capone's house and they didn't see him there Capone went into hiding for about a month, which more than likely he was in Cicero. And he was sending word through his lieutenants that any witnesses that decided to come forward, they were going to die. So like I said, there were several eyewitnesses in the saloon at the time who saw the murder. But strangely, everyone just happened to be looking the other way at the exact moment that Joe Howard was killed. So... Nobody ended up coming forward, and when Capone realized that he was good to go, he ends up walking into the police station one day after he found out that he was full and clear. He walks into the police station and he says, quote, I hear you're looking for me. What's this all about? Now, there is a young assistant state's attorney by the name of William McSwiggin. He was the one investigating this crime. He was uh, going to prosecute it. And he continued the investigation, okay, for a few more months. He was never able to put together enough evidence to prove that Capone was even there, let alone he was the one who killed Joe Howard. So, obviously, charges were dropped. Couldn't do anything about it. Now, a lot of people, as strange as it sounds, kind of looked at Al Capone as kind of like a Robin Hood figure. He was definitely not. He would do certain things to help people out and to make himself look better. And if some of his thugs would go beat the shit out of somebody or whatever the case may be, he would totally pay for all the hospital bills. But it wasn't a nice gesture. It was kind of the slap in the face type shit. There's a lot of anti-prohibition shit going on right now because people wanted to drink. Like, and the weird thing about prohibition that a lot of people don't realize, it wasn't illegal to drink alcohol because you can't you can't do that. So what they did was they made it illegal to manufacture, transport and sell alcohol, which pretty much alleviated all the shit, right? But people hated it, man. They hated it. So um they liked Al Capone because he's the guy bringing in all the booze. You know what I'm saying? Everybody wants to have a good time, whether it was a politician or just some random guy off the street who's just working a regular job 12 hours a day who wants a beer or some liquor after work. These people were like, please, keep bringing this shit in, man, you're the guy, da-da-da. So after the shooting of Joe Howard, like, his reputation starts kind of getting more of a, uh, a violent sound to it, all right? His name starts getting more associated with violence than it does liquor. And while this is going on as well, there's also little feuds going on between him and the north side gang because Al Capone and Torrio and their guys were the south side and the north side gang which was significantly smaller I mean they were feuding it out over this shit and he didn't want to be drawn into the gang wars but it just kind of happened that way he tried to negotiate agreements with some of these other gangs over territory all right it's because his whole thing was like listen there, it, Chicago's big enough you know, we can all split it up, we can we can share profits, we all can make money, and we don't have to kill each other over this shit, because there are some feuds going on right now. It really hasn't popped off, but there's some shit about to go down. So, the smaller Northside gang is led by a guy named Dino Banion. He started to come under pressure from the Jenna brothers, who were allied with... Capone and Torrio because the Jenna brothers kept stepping on the toes of territory that was not theirs that was O'Banion's territory so the Chicago outfit led by Torrio and Capone they basically were calling the shots in Chicago at this time and Johnny Torrio had set up an agreement between Dean O'Banion and his outfit and, like I said, the, the whole agreement was that there's enough territory for all of us. Like, we can all profit off of this. But O'Banion, he wanted to run Chicago. So, O'Banion knew that Torio was kind of unhelpful with the Jenna brothers crossing over into the north side. Now, like I said, they had these agreements on territory and shit like that. But, when O'Banion started complaining about the Jenna brothers, Torio's like... That's no big deal, da-da-da, so this pisses O'Banion off, right, because they had this agreement. Torio didn't know it at the time, but O'Banion had been hijacking some of the Outfit's liquor trucks for for years because he wanted to run Chicago alone. So the whole time he's bitching about the Jenna brothers crossing over into their territory, he's actually hijacking liquor shipments from Torio's group, The Outfit. So he ends up setting up Torrio and Capone for some murders in one of the outfit's local clubs, which did not work. But then on May 19th, 1924, Torrio and Capone get busted in a prohibition raid that O'Banion knew about. He knew the ship was going to go down and he had worked it out to where Capone and Torrio were going to be there. And this was at an illegal brewery that uh, Torrio and Capone were thinking about purchasing uh, some of the stocks in the building. And while they were there, it gets raided by police and Capone and Torrio get arrested. But the shitty thing about it is, after they get arrested, O'Banion starts bragging about how he knew the raid was going to happen. And he had set them up and shit, which was probably not the best idea. So, after Capone and Torrio get out of jail... Torrio calls up his good buddy from New York, Frankie Yale. So on November 10th, 1924, Frankie Yale and two local hitmen. I cannot remember their names for the life of me. I didn't even write them down. They go to Dean O'Banion's flower shop, which is uh, the business that he ran. And he's preparing flowers for a gangster funeral. Okay. And they walked into the flower shop and O'Banion, who didn't recognize them, reached out to shake Frankie's hand and when he did that, Frankie Yale held on to his hand, while him and the other two guys just unloaded revolvers into him. They, they All three of them emptied their guns. So, Dino Banion is dead, and this puts his number two, a guy named Jaime Weiss, at the head of the Northside gang. He's also backed by two guys named Vincent Drucci and Bugs Moran, a guy named George Moran. He went by Bugs Moran. Weiss had been a very close friend of O'Banion and the Northsiders at this point, they're like, we need to fucking handle business. We need to take care. We need retribution, right? Because Jaime Weiss and O'Banion went way back. They were gangsters together. They were close friends. The murder of O'Banion drew a lot of attention to the outfit. So on January 12th, 1925, Capone was ambushed. He was a little shook up, but he was totally fine. He was at a restaurant at a time. They fire at Capone's car. They ended up injuring his chauffeur, but they missed Capone. And of course, it was the Northside gang, Jaime Weiss, Bugs Moran, and Vincent Drucci. And here's a newspaper article from the Chicago Tribune, January 13th, 1925. In the shooting yesterday morning at 55th and State Streets, the police saw an attempt to kill Brown, who was second only to John Torrio in the liquor and gambling industries. There was some suspicion that the attempt was in revenge for the murder of Dean O'Banion. Thirty shots were fired at the automobile Barton was driving, but Brown was not in the machine at the time. One bullet went through Barton's overcoat, coat, and underwear, just searing the flesh. The automobile belonged to Ralph Brown, brother of Al. But the accepted theory is that the gunman believed Scarface was in the machine. I don't know why, but I love seeing old articles like that. It's pretty awesome. And like I said, he did go by Al Brown. And his brothers went by Frank and Ralph Brown. You know, that was their uh, their aliases. So then on January 24th, 1925, which was 12 days later, Johnny Torrio was shot several times. And here's the newspaper article on this as well. Gang chief silent as death nears, refuses to name assailants. Johnny Torrio, in crowned king of Chicago gangland since the assassination of Dean O'Banion two months ago, tonight wavered between life and death in the hospital in which he was taken last Saturday after four gunmen attempted to kill him in front of his home. Doctors said it was doubtful if he would survive the night. In the crisis, the man who lived by the gun and appeared likely to die by it revealed not a hint as to the identity of his assailants, although the police are convinced he knows who they were. Torrio today failed to identify George Moran, a Palavo Banion as his assailant, although the 17-year-old youth who witnessed the attack said Moran was one of the four men who shot Torrio five times as he alighted from his automobile. When Moran was brought before him, Torrio weakly turned his head, then whispered, You men have the wrong fellow. A special guard was provided today for Mrs. Torrio and Al Capone, a lieutenant of Torrio's, after mysterious phone messages were received at the hospital where they were visiting Torrio. So here's all how that all went down. And this, that article came from uh, a New York newspaper, by the way. After driving his wife home from doing some shopping, Torrio was ambushed. And like I said, he was shot five times by O'Banion's crew. And this was for retaliation for the murder of O'Banion. Now, Torrio was shot in the chest, neck, right arm, and groin. But when the shooter walked up to the car and placed the gun to Torrio's head, he went to pull the trigger and it just clicked. The gun was out of ammo. So what they did, they just kind of kicked him a couple times and took off. And uh, Torrio ended up living, right? So Capone and a lot of the bodyguards sat outside Torrio's hospital room and protected their boss. Believe it or not, he did recover pretty quickly. But after he recovered, Torrio was sentenced to serve nine months in jail for that uh, prohibition raid. While he was in jail, he paid off the warden to give him a bulletproof cell with two armed guards at all times. Because he knew, he's like, I just got shot five times. If I'm locked up in here, they're going to work it out to where they kill me off in here. So he had everybody paid off. He was good. After he gets out of jail, he straight up resigns. And he handed control over the entire outfit to Al Capone, who was 26 years old at the time. And he became the new boss of the organization. And I mean, this was illegal breweries, transportation network that went all the way from Chicago to Canada. And this guy also had political and law enforcement protection. And like I said, at one point in time, Capone estimated that he had half of the cops and government officials in Chicago paid off. And in later years... It wasn't just him that estimated that. It was also the State Department. So, like, the dude ran the city. Johnny Torrio's last words to Capone before he left, because he went to fucking Italy. He's like, I'm retiring. You can have everything. Just give me a small percentage, which I think was, like, probably, I don't know, 10, 20, 25%, something like that. You can have everything, run it. Just give me a cup. I'm moving to fucking Italy. And he told Al Capone, it's all yours, Al. Me? I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. He did end up coming back to Chicago to serve as a consigliere uh, in Capone's outfit and to testify at his tax evasion trial in 1931. Um, he did go on to New York, and he served as somewhat of a mentor to Lucky Luciano as well. Johnny Torrio ended up dying April sixteenth, nineteen 1957 while, uh, from a heart attack while in New York, so... Johnny Torrio had always told Al Capone to keep a low profile, and Capone always ignored that advice, alright, he moved his headquarters to Metropole Hotel in downtown Chicago, which was like five stars, man, it was plush as fuck, that's what they said anyway, Um, whenever he was accused of a crime, he'd hold a press conference, he would straight up just be like, okay, what am I being accused of? There's nothing here, you know. I'm just a guy who provides a service. I just supply a demand. That's all I do. I'm not this huge bad guy. He would straight up hold a fucking press conference. Like, anytime somebody accused him of a crime. But in the Metropole Hotel, he also had secret passages and tunnels. So, if any time if people were coming in, you know, or they were going to raid the place, oh boy, man, they'd be down in the fucking tunnels getting out of there. It was no big deal. And also he realizes that he is for sure probably the biggest target in Chicago at the time, not only by law enforcement, but by other gang members as well and other crime organizations that wanted his rackets and wanted his territory and wanted to take over his businesses. Now, although Al Capone very, very rarely carried a gun himself, he also had more security than the United States president at the time he also had a $20,000 customized Cadillac limo, and today's money that's 300 grand. It weighed 7 tons and it was an armored car with bulletproof glass. Like all bullshit aside, and by the way, no the president after his shit was sold at auction or whatever, no the president did not buy Al Capone's car and use it in his motorcade. That is uh that is a myth as well. So he's spending all this money, all right? Al Capone's got this luxurious lifestyle. He is the head of the outfit, and he's 26 years old. So he's indulging, all right? He's got custom suits. He smokes the finest cigars, man. He's got gourmet food, gourmet drinks. His preferred liquor was uh, Templeton Rye, which was made out of uh, Iowa. He always had women around, too. He was a philanderer like he was not a faithful guy at all his wife obviously stuck with him but yeah he had mistresses he was always sampling the women in the brothels you know he had flamboyant suits he had really expensive jewelry anytime people would ask him about his activities because everybody knew who this dude was everybody knew he did illegal shit they just couldn't really pin anything on him right So every time they'd ask him about his shit, he'd just be like, I'm just a businessman giving the people what they want. Or he'd tell them, all I do is satisfy a public demand. He ended up becoming a national celebrity. Everybody knew who Al Capone was. When you think of Chicago, the first thing that comes to your mind if you're familiar with Chicago and familiar with the gangsters is always Al Capone. That's kind of what Chicago's known for. You know, whether it's unfortunate or not, I don't know. Don't really care. So one of the coolest things about, I hate saying cool things, but he was very organized. He was very, very organized. And literally like anybody alive that knew the guy, whether they were prosecutors, whether they were lawyers, whether they hated or loved him, all of them said the same thing about Al Capone. He was a very, very good businessman. They said if he would have legally gone into businesses and been in that industry, he would have been the CEO of Fortune 500 companies. like it's it's insane like how smart and how business savvy he truly was. And in the outfit the the thing was everybody had a job. whether it came down to the breweries or whatever. like there were mechanics for his beer trucks. there were guys in charge of building the breweries. Like I said, he had half of the city, half of the officials paid off. The dude did whatever he wanted, but he kept everything super organized and business oriented. And that's what he was more about. He's more about making money than he was about anything else. And I mean, his normal day, they said he would wake up, he would take his time getting up. He would be on the phone most of the day. That was most of his day was being on the phone, making phone calls, checking on shit, making sure everything was running smoothly. If there was a problem, he would address it. Now, because he owned half of the city's police and politicians, he was able to use a lot more violence to start increasing his revenue. If there was an establishment that refused to purchase liquor or beer from him, that place would get blown up. I shit you not. Then, he would go and offer to lend them the money to fix it, because if there's a speakeasy... It's not legal to have a bar or what they called a saloon. So speakeasies were illegal establishments. You can't go to the bank and ask for a loan to rebuild an illegal establishment. So they had to get the money from somewhere. So Al Capone would be like, oh, your place got blown up. I'll lend you the money. And he would just tack on that interest and you were indebted to him pretty much for fucking ever. And don't get me wrong, that's like a horrible technique, a horrible way to go about shit. But he knew that they can't go to the bank and ask for money, so what else are they going to do? And they would take the money from him to rebuild their establishment, and then they would start selling his booze. So yeah, he would make twice as much money, one off of interest, one off of liquor sales. During the bombings in the 20s, all right? They said as many as 100 people killed in these bombings when he was blowing up these speakeasies that were selling, you know, illegal booze. He didn't fucking care. He cared about money and his family. That was about it. He started actually building more brothels as well because that was a huge business at the time. Now, in late December 1925, he goes to New York to take his son to doctor's appointment because, like I said, his son was pretty much deaf and... Some of the best care was in New York at the time, and he had affiliations there, so that's where he went for the for the best doctors. He ends up doing a favor for his old friend Frankie Yale, and him and his guys take out three of Frankie Yale's enemies. Now, Capone and his men were arrested, but all witnesses ended up saying that they really didn't see anything. So uh, all those charges, those three murders, charges were dropped. Now, in April of 1926, this is when, like, the beer wars is what they referred it to as the gang wars there in Chicago. You know, it's shit really popped off. Jaime Weiss, like I said, was the number two and a really, really good friend of Dino Banyan, who Torrio and Capone had murdered. So there's this huge feud there. So Capone tried to solve this problem, and he offered Weiss a shitload of money. And he offered him exclusive rights to sell alcohol to every speakeasy north of Madison Street. Jaime Weiss refused it because he was still not over O'Banya's death. And he's like, you cannot kill my best friend in the fucking world and then just throw money at me and expect me to forget about it. So when Capone came to him offering this uh, money and offering him all the territory north of Madison Street to sell liquor at with no problems, Weiss's response was, kill the men who killed my friend. And he knew who the fuck killed his friend, okay? He knew exactly who killed his friend. But that was his response. So Capone is like, all right, fam, I got you, man. So Jaime Weiss, who had been doing a little bit of jail time, he gets out of jail, okay? He decides to make Dean O'Banion's flower shop on State Street his new headquarters. And Jaime Weiss... Made deals with uh, some bootleggers in Cleveland, rum runners in Miami, wholesalers in Quebec, slot machine operators from Cicero, bootleggers from Chicago's south side. Basically, Jaime Weiss, when he got out of jail and he set up his base of operations in the old flower shop that O'Banion had, he went out of his way to become friends with anybody who was an enemy of Al Capone. Which, if he had more men in the Northside gang, probably would have been a smart idea. But that's not how it works. Anyway, moving on. On April 27th, 1926, two of Capone's sworn enemies are spotted in Cicero. Capone ordered his men to gun them down, right there where they stood. Three men ended up dead, and three more ended up wounded. Now, Capone did not know it, but one of those men that died was William McSwiggin. And I hope you remember me mentioning his name. He was known as the hanging prosecutor. He was the one who tried to prosecute Al Capone for months over the murder of Joseph Howard. When he found that out, when he found out one of the guys who died was, was McSwiggin, he goes to Lansing, Michigan, and he hides out in a, in a cottage for the summer, basically. While he's gone, the city of Chicago... And some of the, some of the officials there are starting to get tired of the way Chicago's going down fucking hill. They're like, we have shootings, we have bombings going on all the time, something needs to be done, alright? Even the public, who had usually backed Al Capone, are like, we you gotta do something about this, like, innocent people are getting shot. So that three month span when Al Capone is out of town, okay... Weiss is rebuilding all these connections. And like I said, he's trying to make friends with everybody and anybody who is an enemy of Al Capone. So while Capone is away, he's working out a deal with state and federal prosecutors about this shooting. Now, Capone returns to Chicago in July. There were six grand juries that met, and they came to the conclusion... They did not have enough evidence to convict Al Capone of any of the three murders that happened, McSwiggan included. So the problem just kind of went away. And because the police had no evidence of the murders, now they knew he was the one calling the shots and they know he was the one that was involved. So what they did instead while he was away that three months is they raided his businesses. And they started gathering a bunch of documentation that would later be used to get the charges of income tax evasion that would eventually put Al Capone behind bars. When he goes back into town and all these charges get dropped, what he does is he, you know, there's a bunch of newspaper articles about him being back in town. Da da da. They didn't have, there were a few people who even had a radio back then. They got all their news from the newspapers. So what he did when he got back into town was he grabbed a reporter and a photographer and he took them around the city of Chicago to every police station, courthouse, and jail. He walked up to every cop, detective, and judge and said, hey, do any of you want to arrest me? Straight up took a reporter and a photographer with them, went everywhere to everybody and said, you guys want to arrest me? Nobody did. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. That's the kind of Power that he pulled. You understand what I'm saying? In July of 1926, Al Capone is back. Jaime Weiss is ready to start this war again, you know, for the revenge of killing O'Banion. So he plans an ambush on Al Capone. So what Jaime Weiss ends up doing is he kidnaps Al Capone's driver. And it's because his driver knew Capone's daily schedule. All right. But he wouldn't talk. Weiss had him tortured. They burned cigarettes on him. They hit him with branding irons. And the man went through all of this torture, right? And never said a fucking word. Jaime Weiss ended up shooting him in the head and they dumped his body in a cistern. That was the end of that. When Capone found out, he was livid. You know, it's said that him and Torrio used to torture people in the basement of the Four Deuces on Wabash, but it didn't matter. Capone was pissed. That was his driver. He had nothing to do with the actual gangland. He was just the guy who drove him around. So on September 20th, 1926, the Northside gang used a decoy outside of Capone's headquarters at the Hawthorne Inn. Ten cars full of gunmen with Thompson... Submachine guns, which are known as Tommy guns and shotguns, they rolled through and they shot up the entire block. So after this caravan, this through these 10 cars rolled through, they walk outside him and one of his bodyguards walk outside and his bodyguard noticed that there was nothing actually shot up. And that's when he realized that it was a decoy and it was a trap. While they were standing outside, seven more cars rounded the corner. And just held their uh, tommy guns and shotguns out the window and they sprayed the entire block. Then a guy got out, went inside the Hawthorne Inn, and shot the place up completely. They said about 5,000 bullets hit that place in under 10 minutes there was nobody killed whatsoever Capone walked away unhurt and there was only one person injured and Capone did end up paying their hospital bills because they weren't, you know, that was none of their business they were just an innocent bystander so he calls for a truce he's like, listen, we need to end this shit right now they were doing some negotiations those negotiations fell through so one of Jaime Weiss's new allies, okay he was a Southsider named Joe Saltis He was on trial for murder, and this is one of the guys that uh, was an enemy of Al Capone that Jaime Weiss had befriended while Capone was in Lansing, Michigan, right? Jaime Weiss ended up raising $100,000 for Saltis' defense. On October 11th, 1926, this was the first day of the Saltis trial. After court ended, Weiss told his driver to take him to his headquarters, which was the flower shop. Weiss had a list of jurors. ...in his pocket and a list of state prosecution witnesses in a safe at the flower shop. So he was really trying to head there and get this information so that they could get Saltis off of the murder charges. So when he gets to the flower shop, he jumps out of his Cadillac and he goes to cross the street. Never made it to the front door. Capone had a couple of guys rent rooms in a hotel that overlooked the flower shop. They saw him crossing the street... They opened up fire with Tommy guns, and Weiss was killed instantly, man, right there in the street. And this is when Bugs Moran becomes the new leader of the Northside gang. So Capone, just as a slap in the face, sends his condolences and said he had nothing to do with it. But Capone would have killed him sooner, but he was already out of town. Like I said, he wasn't on vacation, he wasn't hiding, This all happened the same month that Jaime Weiss got out of jail. So the owner of Hawthorne's restaurant was a friend of Capone's. This was one of his headquarters. He ended up being kidnapped and killed by Moran and Drucci in January of 1927. So Capone starts getting more, more security minded and he wants to get away from Chicago. He would always take precautions. Like he and his entourage would show up at one of the Chicago train depots and they'd buy the whole sleeper car. They'd take the night train to like Cleveland, Omaha, Kansas City, Little Rock, Hot Springs, Arkansas. They would spend, you know, a week or two in hotels and they would use fake names and they would just relax because he had to get out of Chicago sometimes. In early 1927, newspapers of the time... And the US Attorney's Office, they estimated that Al Capone illegally made $1.4 billion in today's money. $1.4 billion off of his rackets that he had. And like I said, man, this dude, he used to sport an 11 and a half carat diamond pinky ring that was worth, in today's money, about $700,000. And at this point in time, in early 1927, Big Bill Thompson gets voted back in as mayor of Chicago. For Capone, this is a good thing, man, because he had Big Bill Thompson paid off earlier. He knows he can pay him off again. Big Bill Thompson hates prohibition. So he's like, perfect, man. We're in good shape. This is awesome. So he's starting to relax around Chicago a little bit. Starts taking his son to baseball games. And he would often use a a decoy kid. He he didn't want to take his actual son out into public for fear of there being a kidnapping, him getting killed, something like that. So he would often use a decoy kid, but he's going to baseball games. He would box in his free time, and he would just have, like, fun, try to relax. So, in January of 1928, uh, Al Capone paid $40,000, which is about $610,000 in today's money. And then he drops... $1.5 $1.5 million in improvements to a 14-room retreat at 93 Palm Avenue in Palm Island, Florida, which was uh, between Miami and Miami Beach. He never registered any property under his name, okay? He did not even have a bank account. He would use Western Union for cash. Uh, He would always send, cap it off at like, I think, $15,000 in today's money and just do wire money transfers and shit like that. He had, uh, you know, his house was in his wife's name. He had shit in his uh, mom's name. Everything was in somebody else's name because he was aware of taxes. And he had all this shit and he wasn't paying for it. You know, he wasn't paying taxes on any of this shit of all this money he was making. So... What he starts doing to clean up his image at this point in time is he starts donating to a shitload of charities, and he sponsors soup kitchens and food banks all over Chicago during the Great Depression. Now, for those of you outside of the country who are younger, who are not familiar with the Great Depression in America, you know, even even the Dust Bowl, which isn't spoken about very much, the Great Depression was Probably the worst economically that the United States has ever been. There were hundreds of thousands of people out of work. People were poor. There were people that were legitimately selling their fucking kids because they could not feed them, let alone feed themselves. It was absolutely a horrific period of economic history in America. Now, a lot of people will sit here and say... He was only doing it for public relations. He was only doing it to make himself look better in the papers like a better guy. That's the only reason he had these soup kitchens or food banks or donated to charities. But in all reality, and I hate playing devil's advocate here, and I'm not justifying anything that Al Capone ever did, okay? But Al Capone was the only person doing this, whether it was to make himself look better or whatever the case might have been. There was no federal money offering these things in the city of Chicago. Whether it was to make himself look better or not, Al Capone was legitimately the only fucking person doing this. There were people who got their three meals a day strictly because Al Capone opened these up for them. So just keep that in the back of your mind, alright? And like I said, I'm not trying to justify this or that, but that is a fact. But in early summer of 1928 we run into a big problem here capone and his longtime old friend frankie yale have a little bit of a falling out yale wouldn't endorse a candidate for capone capone had this certain guy that he wanted to be president of the chicago branch of what was the predecessor to the sicilian mob the sicilian mafia okay i can't remember uh, what the organization was that When they said it, it was in Sicilian, so I, I don't understand that. But basically, it was kind of like the the black hand or the predecessor to the mob, okay? Al Capone was from Naples, so he could not be in the Sicilian mob or with this group of guys. So Capone figured, if I can get my guy elected as president of this other criminal organization— That means that I can control that other criminal organization, which is a pretty legitimate thought. It really is. I mean, he had a plan. We can't deny that. But Frankie Yale was not having it. Frankie Yale was like, no, fuck that. I'm not endorsing this guy. Da-da-da-da-da. So Capone gets super pissed, right? And they have this huge falling out. So right about this time period when this is going on, some of the alcohol shipments from Yale... That were coming in to Chicago from New York. Start getting hijacked before they're leaving New York. And Capone thinks that Frankie Yale might be the one behind it. He's like how come it's only your shipments that are getting hijacked before they leave the state. Something's not right here. So he sends a guy named James Diamato to spy on him. Well James Diamato confirms exactly what Al Capone was thinking. And he's like, yeah, dude, he's legit having his own trucks. He's legit having your trucks hijacked before they even leave the state. He's taking the shit, selling it on his own, and basically just cutting you out and telling you that the shit got stolen. So Capone, when he realizes that, he's pissed. But before James D'Amato could ever leave New York City, he ends up getting killed. Frankie Yale takes him out. Capone finds out that James D'Amato ends up getting taken out. And he sends an unsigned wire to Frankie Yale. And all it says is, Frankie, someday you'll get an answer to D'Amato. Well, on July 1st, 1928, Frankie Yale is at a speakeasy with some friends. And he gets a phone call, and nobody knows who was on the phone, But as soon as he hangs up the phone, he runs out of this place as fast as he can and he gets in his car and he drives down the street just speeding, just hauling balls to get as far away as he can. And the whole time there's a car following him, right? The car ends up catching up and they end up shooting up Frankie Yale's car. And they end up killing Frankie while he's driving and the car crashes into a damn house. About a block away, the hitmen... In this other car. They toss all their guns out the window. And why this is relevant. Is because one of those guns was a Tommy gun. And this was the first time. A machine gun had been used in New York. And they traced it back. To a gun supplier in Chicago. Who was known to supply. Al Capone. And the outfit with guns. And the most important thing. That you need to realize about this. Capone did this on purpose. Because he wanted the New York gangsters to know not to fuck him over. He wanted them to know that it was him. Here in the late 20s and in part 2, we got Lucky Luciano coming into the scene. We're going to talk about the meeting in, in Atlantic City that Lucky Luciano held with all these national crime figures. And it's the same meeting that Al Capone walked out of. Because he didn't want people telling him how to run his fucking business. Telling you man. A lot more to come in part 2 and part 3. I'm going to try to wrap it up with part 2. But I cannot guarantee anything at this point in time. Because there's a lot of shit going on with Al Capone. Especially when it comes to his uh, charges. When he gets charged with tax evasion. But anyway. I hope you guys enjoyed. As you know social media wise you can follow me on instagram at mysterious podcast you can follow me on twitter at podcast mc uh you guys can also follow my personal instagram if you want just please for the love of god if you don't have any posts if you don't have a profile picture if you don't have a real instagram account i'm not gonna let you follow me because uh it's it's my personal account so it's private anyway yeah my email is justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com you can always reach me that way I suppose if you want to stick around and listen to some new reviews, you can. If not, I'll see you folks on the flip side. go ahead and start with Australia. Let's see if we got anything there. Oh, we do. Five stars. Fuzz me from Sydney, Australia. You smash these crime stories like a boss. Fucking that is perfect timing, man. Perfect timing. No, I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, You know, whatever I try to cover, I try to do it seriously. There are certain episodes I try to have fun with because I can, you know, but i appreciate it man thank you very much or woman i'm not sure if you're a man or a woman but either way hell yeah man keep rocking on in sydney australia uh canada we got nothing new let's check out the uk nothing new in the uk usa let's see what we got we got one uh from podcast addict uh this one is from garfman 72 is the date on that it says well researched interesting topics it's like someone having a conversation with you instead of reading a script. Garfman, Garfman seventy two. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that compliment, man. I always take that as a compliment. I just like talking about this shit. I don't like reading about it, you know. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, five stars. K. Cummins interview with Jason Murphy. Awesome interview. Great voice. No self possession like Zach. Begging for attention. Begins. <laughs> Just great stories and great times. You know what? I will agree with that, man. Zach. I love that. Zach begging for attention (laughs) beggins. It's a good name for him, dude. But no, thank you, uh, K Cummins, for that five star review. I appreciate it. And I love talking to Jason. We actually uh text each other, you know, when we want to talk about stuff now, so we moved our friendship off of social media. We text each other so there. No, I hope to have Jason and the rest of his team on and even some of the people that he works with in some of these investigations and stuff like that, you know, involving hauntings. Uh, I'm always curious, you know, and like I told Jason and he knows a lot of people understand, you know, I'm extremely skeptical as is he. He gets it. So, uh, it's it's fun having conversations with people of the same mindset who still do have that belief in the paranormal but are super skeptical of, you know, other people's stories and and stories that have no historical backing to them whatsoever. So thank you, Kate Cummins. Next one is five stars bill 4,800, not just a script reader. Always a great show. Never sounds like a script being read. Thank you very much, Bill. And uh, like I previously mentioned, you know, I like talking about this shit. I don't like reading about it. So it works out. And thank you for leaving that five star review. Thank you very much. Next one is five stars, Priscilla 311. Amazing podcast, you'll love it. Oh, she put the heart emoji in there. Thank you for all of your time and energy you put into research of your podcast. I learn so many new details on the various topics you cover. It's a bonus that you have such a soothing voice to deliver your information. I've been a fan of your show for over 4 years now. Keep up the awesome work. Priscilla from Northern California. Hell yeah, Priscilla. Thank you very much. I'm glad that you're actually one of those people who who realizes that I've been around this long because my network always says like 2017 or whatever. And it's like, no, I joined a new network in 2017. So it erased my original date. I've been around since April of 2016. So And this is uh, another one from Kay Cummins, actually. And it said, uh, five stars, says Bruce Lee and Adler. Awesome story and things I have not heard before, and your voice is great, not over the top, or sounding like you're like Zach begging for attention, Baggins. Adler, you are one awesome young man, and we are all praying for you. Obviously, I have no problem with you changing the review. Because I, when I originally read that, I was like, who's Zach begging for attention? And then you revised that review, and uh, it said that uh, it explained it a little bit more. But update on Adler, he had his surgery uh, at the end of last month. He is doing good. He is recovering very well. Um, while they were in the hospital, though, his mom did catch COVID as of now i actually just talked to her yesterday they are recovering just fine adler has not caught it he is recovering great mom is doing great recovering from covid just fine she's happy that she finally has the antibodies now but adler is doing good still kicking ass and still taking names he's a very admirable young man i tell you what man there's not too many people on this earth that can go through what he goes through on a daily and weekly and monthly basis since he was four years old and he still has a positive attitude and he still gets up every day and he still fights and I fucking love that I do so thank you very very much for for giving him a shout out and I showed that review to his mom as well and she's like I love it I love it that's so awesome so you made more than just me smile when you left that so and I I'm glad you enjoyed the Bruce Lee episode as well so That is all I got for you. Have a good one.